the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome back to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world, and we're having our conversation as we are kind of at the beginning, but into Lent. So we're having the conversation during this most holy, solemn time of our Catholic Church year. The one thing, though, that I always like to kind of point out to people, you know, when we think about religion, we think about prayer, we think about fasting, without a doubt, as we should. Um, And I do think that people, that, that Christians and Catholics are generally pretty charitable, pretty thinking about wanting to help their neighbor. But I do think that sometimes they do think about it as, okay, that's a really nice thing to do. I'm supposed to be charitable. But the real religious stuff is the prayer part, and the real religious stuff is kind of the fasting, especially during Lent. Uh, But that's a little bit being too constrained with Lent, because traditionally, it's the three things that are part of the Lenten practices. Now, I have to say, I do think one of the uh, popes who articulated that better than almost anybody else was Pope Benedict, Mm -hmm. because Benedict talked about the importance of prayer, the importance of the sacraments, the importance of those types of activities. He talked about the importance of teaching and understanding the faith and doctrine. But he also said, same level, charity and service. So it's not like prayer sacraments are super high, doctrine and belief is kind of mid-high, and then charity and service is kind of like important, but not quite so important. No, no, he said all three. You've got to focus on all three if you are a, um, if you're living kind of the fullness of the Christian Christian message. So as we kind of continue this Lenten season, let's kind of keep thinking about what are some of those things that are part of the tradition that we need to do a little bit, uh, a little bit more. So I think it's appropriate during Lent that our next guest is Professor Mark uh, Gulpin, who is the director of the Center for World Religions, Diplomacy and Conflict Resolution and um, at George Mason University. And we're going to speak with him about the Holy Land, the land where the three major religions do have some major important um, centers that are there for some the center. And we're going to speak about this, you know, during this holy season of Lent and some of the issues that have been raised with regard to Israel and uh, Christians and others in the Holy Holy Land, in Israel, in Palestine. Professor Mark Gulpin, thank you for joining us on Just Love. Hi, it's nice to meet you. Good. So would you um, kind of give our listeners just a little bit of your background about um, where, um, you know, how did you wind up you know, making this an area that you study and, and teach about. Give all this is just a little sense of your background. Well, I um, 
I basically grew up um, Orthodox Jewish, and uh, I studied intensively when I was a kid. I studied um, philosophy and psychology, but also sacred studies for many, many years. And then, uh, then I became uh, an Orthodox rabbi uh, because I had been studying with a very with the foremost preeminent scholar of Orthodox uh, Talmudic studies. And I got my ordination from him in '83. Uh, but I had also uh, developed a passion for understanding the psychological roots of, uh, of religious philosophy and ethics. And I went on to get a PhD in ethics from Brandeis University that focused on moral sense theory and particularly compassion and its role in human decision making uh, and in the theology and practice of Judaism, uh, a very particular kind of ethics. I was unsatisfied that I, on an intellectual journey and practical journey, that so much of the field of ethics is not terribly um, appropriate for very complex circumstances of conflict and war. I was very interested in seeing, I mean, the Holocaust had a very, very big impact on me as it did on most Jews in my family, which was mostly from Poland. And uh, most of my DNA is from Poland and Ukraine. And I... um, I found this field of conflict analysis and resolution, and I developed a, a, a marriage with it in my practices, and I started going to Israel-Palestine and working with uh, communities on either side of enemy systems. And that began a lifelong process and journey of studying the sources of peace and conflict within Jewish tradition. And then I started teaching it within many religious traditions. And then I wrote my first Oxford book, in 2000, and second Oxford book on holy war and holy peace. And that began a trajectory towards a full professorship and a center dedicated to world religions, diplomacy, and peacemaking. So that's how I got, that's how I got here. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. That was very enlightening to me. And what you did is you touched on a topic dear to my heart, which I'm just going to mention now, but we're going to have to have a longer conversation about it because given your look at you talk about some of the ethics not being nuanced enough or to deal with the complexities of the modern world i've always felt well no let me say this i felt for the past five or ten years that the traditional articulation of the just war theory in catholic um theology is is pretty much not as helpful in the contemporary world as it may have been 50 or 100 years ago. And I think um, in dealing with non-state actors, dealing with terrorism, things of the, things like that, it, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a cumbersome tool that it may be not so easy to to do. So I am delighted by your mentioning that and your kind of looking at that across religious religious cultures. So um, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I, I loved. Uh, I studied just war theory and Catholic tradition. I studied Aquinas. I studied uh, many people, but I also studied Tom Merton and others. Mm-hmm. And I started to realize that that peace building and peacemaking requires more than the just war sort of thumbs up, thumbs down on right. legitimate conflict and illegitimate conflict, which is important, but it really doesn't put the power in the person to say, well, what can I do? Right. And 
what can I do in my family? What can I do in my community? What can I do in the world? And that requires much more nuance in terms of enemy systems and it's sort of the way in which everyone is right and everyone is wrong in many system, many situations. And yeah. you need tools, the ethical tools that would be adjusted to that. So that's what I've been working on for 25 years. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that. I think it's tremendously important. And, you know, as I said, you're going to get an invitation back. and We're going to focus on that because I think it's critically important. However, what I'd like to kind of focus our conversation on today is that there, there's been a concern, as there always is when you have the election of a new government, whether it be in the United States or in Israel, about what does that mean? And there's been a little bit of, or maybe a lot of controversy about the um, the reform new coalition government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what are some of the concerns that are being raised about that? Right. Well, I also, you know, as you see from the way I've worked and the way I've written, uh, it's very important to put everything in context. And in the context, the the reality is that uh, religions. I, I mean, I'm pers- I'm sure I'm, the 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 American Jewish community is related to Israel, but they also constitute a, a religion. There's a religion across the world of 15 million Jews. And 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 people in religions make independent decisions from states, and yet many states in various religious traditions are closely connected to a religion. Right. That creates dilemmas in history. That create all sorts of tensions and sometimes uh, real problems inside religion. So we ha- so there's a lot of there's hundreds, maybe thousands of rabbis that have a problem because the new coalition. It really the re- the word reform is a misnomer. Um, the fact is that Israel, due to its uh, complex nature, is a, a Jewish ethnic democracy um, with a minority, never established a constitution and a Bill of Rights, even though um, Arab parties have been in the Knesset, in the parliament since, uh, I think, the, the, 60, the late 60s, uh, and, and Arab-Israeli citizens within the Green Line have you know, full civil rights. The fact is that it's all been very, um, it, it's been not determined where the democracy lies. And so what happened was in something called the status quo is that the Supreme Court and something called the base, basic law became the arbiter of what is democracy, who has rights. And this proposed change is to undermine that and to basically say that whatever the majority in parliament, not the majority of the country, but the majority in power can now determine who has rights and who does not have rights. And that is a stunning uh, shift that is following on the dangers we see in, in Hungary and many other places of basically eliminating constitutional rights based on majoritarian thinking. And we know where that goes in terms of minorities, uh, including women, including non-Orthodox Jews, um, but but certainly Palestinians. And that's why the Jewish community, which is mostly the vast majority is a liberal community, um, is up in arms. And so they're, they're, you know, they're, that's the context of what's going on here. It's a very, very serious development. And this development is, is obviously 
any developments that become visible have roots that go back a while. But the visibility of this is relatively recent, isn't it? Well, I think that the Jewish community in the United States wanted to be, they they slowly and steadily became more and more Zionist. Uh, That was not the case in 1940, 1950. Uh, But as, especially in 67, things really turned around. And because half of the Jews of the world now live in Israel, the wars that threatened it, the enemies that they had, the Arab states in 67 and 73, and the state of Iran now, and with potential nuclear weapons right around the corner, the existential threat of another Holocaust is very much deeply rooted in that trauma there. So people just, um, critical or not, uh, are, were, were, um, are concerned about this evolution. And so they try to keep it quiet, but they can't keep this quiet because this could undermine the very definition of, of uh, Israel as a democracy. Um, and that's why uh, you hear voices being, a lot of voices being raised now. Uh, but yes, it was a long time coming because, and this is my interpretation from every all the work I've done on the ground, is that uh, when you can't resolve a conflict, with an existential conflict with a neighbor, <clears throat> everything deteriorates on both sides. So for a long time, the coalitions of Israeli democracy have depended upon non-democratic elements, just like you see in, in various European countries. And at a certain point, the, the non-democratic gain popularity because nothing's being resolved. And that's where we're facing now is that because we didn't work harder for a true Palestinian-Israeli peace accord, whether two states or shared shared federation confederation because that was never resolved and because there weren't demands on both sides for a real peace we now have more extreme young people willing to vote a certain way willing to act a certain way and it could end the democracy so that's why people are concerned you know um professor galpin i mean what you describe doesn't seem to be limited to israel that there does seem to be in various parts of the world that because of some political stagnation, the extremes seem to get more of a voice because the compromise in the middle seems to be paralysis. And so um, so I recognize what you're saying about Israel. I'm thinking of other places where, you know, a similar but different phenomenon is also also occurring. Well, I remember, I mean, you know, we're students of of ancient religions, both of us. And I, in many ways, the technology of misinformation is nothing new in the history of humanity. Uh, the, great, the great wisdom traditions railed against it. The Bible warns against false witnessing and bearing false witness and all of these things. And that, and that you know, you get people killed by bearing false witness and so on. It's all in the Bible. But but what what Twitter and other things do, and especially bots and and organized systems of misinformation from Russia, other places, it's made all of our democracies in peril because because it just excites mobs right away. And then good people who are trying to be discriminating, and I mean discriminating in the positive sense, nationally discriminating, they're not able to make judgments. And so whether it's Maimonides or Aquinas, you know, it sort of undermines the 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 way in which a religious conscience can operate 
mm-hmm. and a secular conscience. And that's that's what that's what we have to fix in the modern world. We have to figure out much much better ways to make judgments and not be uh, misinformed, misled, and manipulated. So let, let me move because you know a year or so ago you spoke at the Council on Foreign Relations and you talked about the challenges to coexistence, Israel and, and Palestine. Would you share with our listeners what, what you see as some of those major challenges? Well, the challenges really uh, are that, that um, Israel is the only place for the, this tiny group of people called the Jews in the world. Their perception post-Holocaust is that it's the only place of refuge, and therefore it must be always a Jewish majority which already complicates democratic systems and citizenship, right? Because if you look from the, from the sea, you know, from, the, from Gaza all the way to the north, to Metula, basically there's 50% Palestinians, 50% Jews at this point, which is really a problematic. I mean, the, the countries that have perpetual civil wars like Nigeria, they're 50-50 Christian, Muslim, etc. So this 50-50 is a combustible mix in many places. The only solutions we've ever seen is a very deep relationship of of collaboration on business and on on uh, equal rights, of course, and on contact and contact of a positive nature. Well, there's mostly no good contact at this point, and so it is it is descending into a um, a situation of proxy warfare. There are malevolent forces in the world that have always seen Israel as a place of confrontation. There, are, there is a radical Christian world that has fed Jewish extremists. There is a radical Muslim world that has, fell, has, has fed Palestinian extremists to such a degree that they permanently split Palestinian leadership between, between Hamas and the PLO, which was disastrous. I was there, I was working on this. And so you have, Israel has always been a war zone because of this proxy warfare, it, it is it, we can overcome this, but we have to be much more savvy about it. For example, most Protestants and Catholics stopped fighting centuries ago, 400 years ago. It was a terrible Protestant-Catholic wars, and the, the last place was Belfast. And so finally, Irish Americans got sick and tired of this, and major presidents, the Kennedys, the Clintons, the Mitchells, and they said, enough. And they put millions of dollars into Ireland for peace, for coexistence, for all those wonderful creative people on the ground. We need that here. We need the vast majority of Christians, Muslims, and Jews to say, look, we need this to be a place of coexistence. And here's how we want to help. That hasn't really happened yet. It's, a, it's always been sort of dividing, you know, the, the, the Christian world that's pro-Israel and the Christian world that's anti-Israel, the Muslim world that's mostly anti-Israel and so on. And the Jews are divided too, terribly against each other. So we do need some conscious effort to say, look, you don't have to fight Protestant Catholic for, for eternity. It can end. And you have to slowly invest in the alternative to hatred and violence. And that's where, we, where the, Jude- the Abrahamic family has to become much more aggressive about people-to-people work, 
uh, economic empowerment, uh, not tolerating extremism on either side, and and focusing on the loving relationships that actually do exist. Uh, I worked on them. I wrote books about them, and but they get buried by the news. Again, the news tends to focus on the terrible events, and they're they're true. But we have to build something else. It needs the whole world's effort. Professor Goldman, that was really um, very very. A kind of a wonderful explanation. You mentioned something in there which I'm only vaguely familiar with, and I think our our listeners might be helpful. It's a little practical. Then you mentioned like dividing Hamas and PLO. For our listeners, say a little bit about that, because I think probably our audience may not be all that familiar with both of those organizations. And so make us a little bit more aware of, of that. Well, um, basically, in the in the eighties, during the uh, this very elite process of peace building called the Oslo Peace Process, very flawed because it was only top down, and only the wealthy and only the highly educated, and we we can't do peace like that anymore, especially in the information age. Um, and in that process, there was still vast sums of money in the Muslim world to be anti-Israel as a religious militant cause. And that's where bin Laden comes out of. And there was a lot of faults for that in the Muslim world, particularly the Arab um, uh, Gulf. But it was also um, uh, agencies like the CIA and others that utilized and weaponized Muslim warriors in Pakistan and other places. We started to pay a price for that because everything become, became Islamic victory overall. And we saw that firsthand with bin Laden. Well, that infected the whole uh, Palestinian identity. And now we have a permanent split between uh, Hamas and the PLO. And there, there is no, and, and the Hamas controls Gaza and PLO controls um, the West Bank. But frankly, if there was an election, it probably would go to Hamas because PLO got a reputation for being elite and wealthy and and corrupt, um, there was just, uh, there just has to be an alternative to really both of these entities. And that is, there's no substitute for a deeper relationship between the Israeli people and the Palestinian people. They are the ones, just like in Ireland, they are the ones that will either keep this going for another 200 years, or will start to build a different relationship. But they do need help that the world would not be would not be reinforcing the polarity. So bin Laden, bin Laden wreaks havoc. The world goes against Saudi and others for supporting, bin Laden, for supporting that approach of Wahhabism. And now we have a very different cir- circumstance, but Gaza, Hamas is still supported by none other than Iran. And so there is a, and Hezbollah. And so there's still a very concentrated effort of an enemy system that is in place. And, and Ariel Sharon and others are not, are not innocent either of this. Dividing and conquer is a part of victory over one's enemies. So what I'm saying is here, we have to stop dividing and conquering the Palestinians, but we also have to stop dividing the Jews as well. We can't, we can't just go in as blindly supporting Jews or blindly condemning Jews. And the Christian world is very split hopelessly on those two options. I have to say the church, the Vatican, has tried to be more nuanced than a lot of Christian uh, um, denominations on this. It's very hard to be nuanced. 
because the brain, the mind, the heart wants to decide where is righteousness. But, but a discriminating ethics is to understand that there's good and bad in all sides. And there was one wonderful father, um, Christian father, a uh, Catholic father in, in Jerusalem, who when I, I was in despair, looking at the sides going at each other in a conflict, in a conference, and he said to me, well, we Catholics are used to the, the fallen state of man. <laughs> so he had, you know, we have a, a certain tolerance for it. And so that was an interesting approach of, of, of understanding and, and forgiveness and then trying to just make things better, which I thought was a... So, you know, Professor Gulpin, before you mentioned that, I was going to mention exactly the same thing, that, that we Catholics, we're kind of comfortable with sin and failure. I mean, we <laughs> kind of, uh, we take seriously um, the book of Genesis and the fall and like, very quickly, it only took a few verses for humankind to mess it up. And, right. Right. and um, even though at the core, we're good, made in God's image and likeness, but oftentimes we don't allow that goodness and, and image and likeness to shine through. And that's why from our Catholic sacramental tradition, we have we have a sacrament of forgiveness because we, you know, we, we believe in, in, in all traditions whether it be uh, Yom Kippur or, or whatever, there's all a recognition that we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to get it right all the time. And we we have to continue to strive toward that with the recognition that we're not there yet. Right. And there's a lot of interesting work between us peace builders or theoreticians of this on comparing different kinds of penance and forgiveness and apology and repentance in the different traditions. And it is essential because that that willingness to understand that you're you're with an enemy who's done terrible things, but you understand that you're capable of it too, you know, that sense of humility um, that that all of us, that's very important to the moments in which people start to compromise. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, we have to work on modeling that better. Well, you know, and as as you pointed out. In the Catholic tradition, I mean, you do have Augustine and others, which will talk about the just war theory, but then you have Merton, and then you have groups like Pax Christi, who say there's there's uh, there's another way to kind of focus one's energy, not right. just the analysis of where's the line, but is there positive stuff that we can be doing to creating a more peaceful world. Right. Exactly. So uh, let me, when, when we have smart people on and Tom knows this, we, what we do is at the end, we kind of make you the czar of the world. And what are the three things you would do to kind of further um, a better situation? in Israel and Palestine. If you were the czar and you could just decree this, what would you do? Really, really good question. Um, yeah, I mean, all of it could be, there's a lot of brilliant work on the ground that is unrecognized. Uh, much of it extremely unfunded, which makes people very depressed and sometimes neurotic. There, if we, I, I think the whole world needs to have 
uh, billion dollar funds for peace building and peace builders and letting uh, a thousand flowers bloom because we never know what is actually going to take off in a viral sort of way between peoples. Sometimes something just clicks, you know, a conference, I do interfaith, you know, relationship building. Honestly, I focus on relationship building, which involves food, which involves uh, risking one's life for each other, which involves going to emergency rooms when somebody's sick. It's a very different approach than a fancy conference. Right. And so sometimes you need a conference to stop something. Sometimes you need somebody showing you an act of unexpected love. So what I would like is a discriminating fund that would really look into all the best things that everyone is doing, give invest a lot of money in them per year, that would be in the United States, but many others could contribute. The Europeans are great at elite peace processes, but again, it has to come down to earth and then see what starts to take off between Palestinians and Israelis. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that every other thing that I would recommend really come down to that because some of them will be deeply religious gestures. Some of them will be very secular. Some of it will be jobs because there's nothing like a good job that changes people's psychological relationships, medicine. So, so there's there, we know the formulas for what heals these conflicts. The other thing that if I could major make a wave a magic wand is to convince the Palestinian world that sometimes when you want an enemy to change, you need to really deeply engage them. Engaging doesn't mean that you're giving up your rights. It means you're beginning the process of achieving understanding and equality so that you can get those rights. That is true in the United States as well. Very often aggrieved groups do not understand that demonization in reverse doesn't help either. Racism is demonization, but anti-racism sometimes is demonization. And so anti-demonization, the humanization of the other, the engagement and be able to tell to discuss right and wrong together over meals over healthcare you know over jobs that's where that's where the magic is and that's where i would put i would i i would seriously try to get at least a tenth of the military budget into that because right now we don't have an even playing field the military budget is massive and i respect self defense i'm not a pacifist but we have to have much, much more of an equivalence of money to even judge whether peace is possible. That, that would be my argument. Great. I'm going to give you a phrase that you can use or abuse however you want. Engagement does not equal endorsement. Good. I like that. <laughs> it's, it, you know, just Love because that. you talk to somebody doesn't mean you're agreeing with them and doesn't mean that you're saying everything is, is perfect. You're engaging, you're interacting with them. Anyway, Professor Mark Gulpin, thank you so much. And thank you for the work at the Center for World Religions, Diplomacy and Conflict uh, Resolution. And thanks for sharing your insights with our listeners on Just Love. Thanks so much. Great. Tom, I think we will take a break. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just than it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just Love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We're kind of speaking about what's going on in the world during our Lenten season. And, you know, it's interesting, Tom, I think sometimes spirituality is seen as something that is apart from the world. And I think when we kind of think of Lent, what we need to realize is that there are the sameness of Lent. In other words, Lent this year is like Lent last year. We're supposed to pray, we're supposed to sacrifice, we're supposed to be charitable. We receive dashes on Ash Wednesday. Um, and we go through the seasons. The liturgical vestments are purple. We'll kind of go through Holy Week, you know, as we do every year. However, what I sometimes think the complement to that, and what I would say is the necessary part to that, is while the objective realities of Lent remain the same, my reality, my subjective reality is very different. And I now need to bring that to the Lenten realities that are year in and year out. For example, some of us maybe have have experienced the loss of a good friend in the past year. Maybe somebody in our family is is sick. Uh, Whatever is going on, or maybe something really positive has happened in my life. Now, that's what I bring to Lent. It's not that I kind of forget about myself, my reality, my world. No, that is what I bring to my praying, what I bring to my sacrifice, what I bring to, to my service. And so... It is both the objective part of Lent and the subjective part that that's what makes this year, Lent 2023, so very important. It's kind of marrying the reality of Lent as we celebrate it as a community of faith with my own faith journey, my own life journey, the changes in my life this year, and figuring out how how we put them all together. So I think, you know, we don't do away with ourselves during Lent. We kind of allow Lent to enter into us more and more. Tom, let's go to our next guest, Professor Stephen Carvel, Professor of Finance at Cornell's University's Johnson College of Business. And we're going to speak about some of the things going on in this world with inflation and how that is infecting how P, the restaurant industry, because it's such an important part of New York. And so many of the people in the restaurant industry have their roots in their education at Cornell University. Um, so I'm delighted that Professor Stephen Carvel has agreed, agreed to be with us on Just Love. Welcome, Professor Carvel. Well, thank you so much, Monsignor. It's great to be here. And as a loyal parishioner of St. Catherine's here in Ithaca and a great fan of Father Joe. I'm happy to join you. 
Great. So did you get your ashes on Ash Wednesday? Uh, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. So we'll, we'll, we'll put you on the spot. I, I've been traveling a bit, so unfortunately. Okay. Um, so give our listeners just a little sense. You mentioned right now where you are, but give our listeners just a little sense how you got into this area, the uh, College of Business at Cornell as a professor of finance. Wow, it's a long road. I, I grew up in the Bronx in New York City. Ah, uh, a fellow uh, Bronxite. Where'd you grow oh, up? Is it, Which part uh, of near Van Collen Park. Ah, I grew up Gun Hill Road in Bainbridge Avenue. I went to DeWitt Clinton High School. That's where my dad went to school. So, uh, so why'd you abandon us? Ah, <clears throat> uh, survival. <laughs> well, okay. That's a good answer. Survival we like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was a long, a long and uh, interesting journey between there and here. Uh, and, uh, you know, wound up getting my doctorate uh, at University of Binghamton. SUNY Binghamton and uh, spent uh, 10 years for two years in Boston as a Yankee fan that didn't work out for me well (laughs) well Yankee fan you're always welcome here we're always Uh, awesome Uh, awesome yep Uh, and uh, you know I also uh, do work with the people in the in the Lotte Palace for many years and uh, I know that they know you well also yeah, so that um, is good. So tell us a little bit. So what are you teaching these days? What interests you in uh, the area of the restaurant industry? What, well, what What's yeah. interesting? You? Well, I, first of all, I teach a wide range of courses here at the Nolan School, which is part of the, the SC Johnson College of Business. Mm-hmm. You know, I teach uh, financial strategy right now is one of the interesting courses I teach, which is how people uh, who run businesses approach uh, the process of earning a profit, you know, for their companies. Right. uh, You know, I had the occasion of having Ed Brown, who is the CEO of Restaurant Associates uh, down in New York. Right. I ran Sea Grill not far from where you are for many years. uh, And, um, you know, just talking to him about what it's like to run their, their facilities. So uh, to, to the, CEO of Intercontinental Hotels, who's the next student. Okay, so 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 when you're teaching about the strategy, how do restaurants make it these days in light of inflation, post-pandemic? What yeah. are some of the strategies you're you're recommending? Well, you know, it is a Monsignor. It's a it's a complex thing right now uh, for these companies, and and it, I should say first, it really depends on which type of restaurant we're talking about because there's that wide range between uh what we call quick service restaurants like mcdonald's to fast casual like a chipotle or something else or or shake shack the ceo of shake shack is a good friend of mine randy garuti you know uh and uh or are we talking about you know high-end restaurants you know uh where uh price doesn't matter at all Right. You know, uh, to the ones that I think are most stressed out of all of it, which are like the independent, you know, uh, more like the mom and pop type restaurants that we might think of. So it's a a really wide range of of problems and different things that they face. So let's let's focus on on the mom and pop. So let's focus on 
let's just say a little bit away from Van Cortland Park, but focus on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, <laughs> where there are a lot of mom and pop uh, Italian restaurants in that neighborhood. What are, you, what are you recommending to them these days? And maybe first, what are the real challenges they're facing and how do they deal with it? Right. Well, you know, uh, the first thing is that pretty much everything has gone up. I mean, we hear about the Federal Reserve trying to tackle inflation, and that's something we could have a long chat about later on, about uh, them trying to fight my grandfather's inflation, as I say it. But food costs, as you as you probably know, and as your listeners know, food costs are up. It's not just for you and I when we go to the grocery store, but wholesale food costs are up a lot. Uh, And that's a big challenge. Uh, The basics, flour, uh, you know, spices, all the basic things that you might not even think about are also up. I mean, we all think about them, but, you know, when we buy a a jar of oregano or something, it lasts us forever. If you're in an Italian restaurant, it's going uh, much quicker. Uh, And, you know, the material costs, you know, just take out. The takeout containers, they've skyrocketed in costs, yeah. you know, uh, cleaning supplies, they've gone up in costs. Energy costs, as you and I know, that our own energy costs, but of course, in a restaurant, they use a, a lot of gas, you know, to cook with, electric, all up really considerably. Labor costs are up, you know, not to mention the high turnover. It's very hard to keep people and, you know, uh, obviously for your, re, you know, for your listeners, it's important to think of living wages. You know, that's a big issue. And, and in the restaurant industry, typically they, they've paid less than in some other areas. So uh, the panoply of all these things just make it really difficult. Uh, you know, just the cost of eggs are gone up. <laughs> so, you know, I, last week on, on, uh, on Just Love, we were talking a little bit about farm inflation, the cost of stuff there. And I told the story, which I'll I'll repeat, that on Ash Wednesday a few weeks ago, we did a food pantry um, in one of the parishes, and uh, it was was a good event. We were able to do it, and we were giving out fresh eggs. And when the people came, they said, eggs? I haven't been able to buy eggs in a while because the cost of them has gone through – through the roof. Yeah. So, I mean, eggs have really skyrocketed. And eggs were a, a less expensive protein staple, you know, uh, aside from obviously being the, the go-to breakfast food, so to speak. Right. Uh, right. No, and, you know, um, you know, McDonald's uses, I don't know, a billion eggs a year, whatever it is. Oh. You know, I saw a study that they, they use 4%, just McDonald's, use 4% of all the free-range eggs produced in the United States. Woo! Woo! That's a lot of chickens. <laughs> That's um, a lot of Egg McMuffins, right? <laughs> that is, but again, so, yeah. let me give you, an, mean, example. Let me give you yeah. an example of the cost of food. And you talk about restaurants, but at Catholic Charities, we do have a fair number of yeah. food pantries and things like that. Yeah. The last Thanksgiving, we usually give out, uh, we have a very generous donor, and we've been giving out for the past few years a 1,000 Thanksgiving meals. The donor was equally generous this year. We could only do 800. 
Right. And the cost of turkeys is, has skyrocketed. Yep, yep. Now, there's a silver lining to that. I was talking to a group of people, and I mentioned that a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving, and somebody came up to me and said, all right, buy the thousand, I'll make up the difference. That's awesome. So, but but it but it proves the point about how the p- cost of food is is really really going up. And Monsignor, you know that the the major reason for that, the same major reason why eggs are up, cost of chicken is up, is avian flu. Really? It's yeah. It's it's devastating across the U.S. Uh, Millions and millions and millions of birds have had to be uh, put, oh. you know, put down in order to uh, control the spread. Uh, it's very difficult to con- costly to control the spread, oh. and it's it's. Uh, this is what I meant by the Federal Reserve fighting my grandfather's inflation. You know, really, if you think about things that have caused all this, it's. You know, in a way, I'll say it's it's climate induced, but it's the biblical things. You know, it's drought and flood and fire and and pestilence. You know, uh, as an example, the the drought last year made the uh, traveling and, and food travel down the Mississippi River more expensive because fewer barges were able to go down the river. Hmm. And uh, they couldn't carry as much because the draft of the boat would then get them lower in the water and they wouldn't clear. So they could carry each barge could carry less food and that increased transportation costs. Obviously, all of these fuel costs, you know, Putin's war in in Ukraine, which is, you know, not the Federal Reserve isn't going to change that. Uh, you know, that not only does that, but the cost of energy gone up means all transportation costs of food higher. Uh, and it's also you mentioned the, you know, farms, beef production. A lot of farmers uh, just decided some farmers across the southwest and in Mexico killed tens of thousands of, of cattle because they couldn't uh, water them wow. properly. You know, so. All of these things are the root cause of the higher prices. I'd like to say when we say it's uh, transient, you know, you have a better inroad to that. Maybe you could tell, maybe you could talk to your boss there (laughs) and uh, let us know, uh, you know, I guess California's got a different problem. You know, all so much of the strawberry crops were destroyed by the floods this year. You know, uh, so uh, it's it really for restaurateurs, it's not just purely the inflation challenge. It's, yeah. you know, it's also just not knowing what costs are going to be, because, you know, when you when you say, OK, I want to build in inflation, if you knew it was going to be five percent higher, that would be one thing. So let me I mean, ask yeah. you, yeah. Professor yeah. Steve Carvel from Cornell University. Let me let me ask you a question. Maybe I'm going to answer it in a way that's a little bit provocative, but I want to get your insights. I mean, you know, I've heard people say, uh, boy, when I go out to eat these days, and we're talking the mom and pop restaurants. Yeah, now, yeah. They yeah, say, yeah. look, you know, look at how much more I'm paying. I'm a, you know, boy, I know there's inflation, but I bet you these guys are gouging the prices also. What, what do you say to somebody who says that? 
Well, I, I, from my experience of talking to people, and this isn't even just a small, you know, mom and pops, but even, you know, uh, I know the people who down at LDV, John Meadow, you know, who's in the city. Uh, and, you know, the truth of the matter is that they don't want to raise prices at all because they have regular customers. Certainly the mom and pops have regular customers. They're, they have multi-generational customers, you know, who go there all the time. Uh, and the last thing on earth they want to do is raise prices. You know, so uh, they do it uh, out of survival. Right. You know, I, I think people don't realize that that's why I uh, took the moment to like just list off the increased costs for them. You know, we don't think of it like that because it's part, you know, our gas and electric bill is our gas and electric bill. But for them, that gas and electric bill is just about running that restaurant. Yeah. It's attached to the restaurant. And truth be known, and, and maybe maybe people should realize, you know, if you can earn like net 12, 15 percent, you know, margin, that that would be great as a restaurant. Yeah. They have thin margins. You know, yep. so they can't, it's, you know, they can't absorb it. This is not like, um, you know, say a pharmaceutical company or something which have record profits and so on. They just have such, you know, immense amounts of money. This is not like that. You know, this is really their, this is their survival too. You know, they, they work a lot of hours, you know, uh, in these places. Yeah. So Professor Steve Carvel, thanks so much for sharing your, your insights and making our listeners, making me smarter about some of the issues that inflation and, and not merely inflation, but the disruption of supply in as right. impacting on restaurants and, and causing us all to have to pay a lot more without necessarily increasing anybody's profits just to stay right. So, Professor Stephen Carvel, thanks for taking the time to be with us on. Ma Justin. Monsignor, could I ask you one question? I'll, I'll give no. you a quick riddle. Do you know what you have more of after you give it away? I should, but I don't. Love. Ah, great answer. Just love. So, just love I just God. thought you'd like to hear that. When I heard I the name of your show, I thought I'd mention it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love Absolutely. yourself. Absolutely. And our world will be more just. It's, it's what Jesus taught us all, right? right. Professor Garvel, thanks for being Thank with you me. so much. Have a God wonderful we'll day. We'll take a break, and we'll all be right. back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and more compassionate. We are in the middle of Lent. What I'd like to suggest to you, and I'll share with you something that I'm doing. When we think about prayer, spirituality, meditation, maybe we should also kind of expand to some spiritual films and movies and use that as a way to meditate. Now, one of the things I have begun to kind of watch um, is The Chosen, and it's free. You have to download the app and you can follow it. But it just strikes me as a very, very good way to spend time reflecting on the scriptures. So when you think about how you're going to pray more in uh, Lent, maybe think a little bit outside of the box. And if it's enjoyable, that doesn't mean it's not a good Lenten practice. It just means it's an enjoyable way to enter into a deeper relationship with God. Thanks for being with us on Just Love. Just do it. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. Our world will be more just and compassionate. The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. 